Hello, this is Scott Pose, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Well, you have found the premier place to hear from all your favorite current and former Royals players unedited, uninterrupted. It's what we do on Clubhouse Conversation with Davo. Weekly, year-round, doesn't matter what month it is, you will hear from all your favorite current and former Royals. So I encourage you to check us out on iTunes. Subscribe on there so you never, ever miss an episode ever again. For free, it'll go directly into your iTunes. You can subscribe on there at Clubhouse Conversation. Right here through the site, you can click on the icon to do so. You can bookmark us here at clubhouseconversation.com. And we are on Facebook, Clubhouse Conversation, and on Twitter, at Royals Clubhouse. And today we are joined by Scott Pose, an outfielder who played for the Royals from 1999 to 2000. Back when he served as Tony Muser's top pinch hitter and fourth outfielder. Left-handed bat, Scott Pose could plug the gaps, really get out and run. Had an exceptional arm out there, a very underrated arm, as you'll find out from hearing about his minor league years. We'll talk all about that. And speaking of minor league years, Scott Pose, originally drafted out of the University of Arkansas by the Cincinnati Reds. As he was playing in the College World Series with Arkansas, he got that news, signed with the Reds, was coming up through their system when the Marlins plucked him in the Rule 5 draft of 1993. Then Scott Pose became the first hitter in Marlins history, and as such, he got on base and became the first hitter to reach base in Marlins history. That, of course, on opening day in 93. From there, things get even more interesting for Pose, who signs with the Yankees organization eventually, does play in pinstripes, including in the playoffs with the Yankees, but also something very interesting to me as a baseball movie aficionado. My favorite two are Sugar and For Love of the Game, and Scott Pose was in For Love of the Game. In fact, he faced current Royals pitching coach Dave Island, who was Kevin Costner's body double in that movie. Scott Pose played Matt Crane in the movie and got in a bat trying to break up Costner, a.k.a. Billy Chappell's perfect game during the ninth inning. So we'll talk about being a movie star star for Scott Pose and how also it led to him coming over and signing with the Royals. We'll talk about plenty of times in a Royals uniform as well. All that and so much more as we join with current BTN analyst Scott Pose by phone. First of all, Scott, thank you for the time. And second of all, how's everything going with you? Oh, it's great. Uh, getting ready for Christmas. Uh, kids are coming home and uh, it's an exciting time of year. So it's always hectic, but fun. How about you? Uh, things are good, man. How, how old are the kids these days? Uh, my son's a sophomore in college. He goes to UNC Charlotte, and then my daughter is uh, sophomore in, co- uh, in high school. Okay. Are you living out there in uh, North Carolina then? Yeah, we're in Raleigh, North Carolina. Love it. Okay. I worked in uh, radio in Charlotte for a couple of years. I really enjoy that part of the country. So We love it. We we have the seasons, but it's not too miserably hot or too miserably cold. Exactly. So. That's all I used to describe it to people. And you got the mountains close, the beach close. It's a good place to be. Um, yes, it is. So baseball broadcasting, you're doing that, some color work, some analysis. You know, Talk more about your broadcasting career. Well, I fell into it, but I really enjoy it. And I get to do it in the spring. I'll do college baseball games for the Big Ten Network and some other networks on occasion. And then I do, last year I did uh, over 50 games color analysis for the Durham Bulls, which is the AAA team for the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. So uh, it's a lot of fun seeing the International League players come through and Anymore, I know more coaches than I do players just because we're about the same age. But it's a good way to stay plugged into the game and, and, and stay in the, the passion that's gotten in my blood my entire life. And it, it's sure a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Big Ten baseball, I'm a Nebraska grad. And since the Huskers are the closest Big Ten team to KC, and since I went to school, they're all throwing a question about them. So what do you think of the work Darren Erstad's doing up there in Lincoln? Well, I think he's a perfect fit for the school. He's a blue-collar type guy, um, but he teaches kids to play the game the right way. They play hard. They're not going to beat themselves fundamentally. They'll always play solid defense. Um, and no matter what they have, they're going to give you the best that they, they have. And they've come into the conference and done very well for a new team in the conference, relatively speaking. But um, I think he embodies the Husker spirit to the T, and he instills that in his players, and it's a great asset to the university. 
And pretty neat to see him turn down and, and withdraw himself from the managerial process there to stay in Lincoln, too. Well, that, too. I think um, uh, he's going to be getting more and more of those offers as well as he's doing, and, and that just becomes the question. I, there's no doubt of his passion for the University of Nebraska. Um, and, um, you know, for Nebraska's sake, um, I hope, I'm sure that they're hoping that no major league team could woo him from his position now. Seems like a family guy, so fingers crossed and loves it there in Lincoln. So how about you then? So 2015 World Series, Royals champions, 2014, you know, just one at bat literally away from taking the World Series. As, as a former Royal, has it given you some pride? Have you enjoyed watching the last couple of World Series? Oh, I love watching it. I'm glad. I know how loyal the fans of Kansas City are, and I think it's only fitting that uh, that they finally get the World Series and the Royals have done it the right way. Um, I feel this impending guilt. I grew up in Des Moines. I knew how good the Royals were in the 70s, and we just couldn't get it done on my watch. And I feel good that the Royals have stayed the course and were able to put together this great organization and great young players and do it in the fashion that they did with just playing the game extremely hard, but the solid base running, uh, the great defense and the speed, and but just the at-bats they grind out. It, it was a lot of fun to watch, and I'm more than happy for the, for the people of Kansas City because they, they more than deserve it. You mentioned Des Moines, and we'll talk about that in a second. But did you grow up, were, were you Twins, were you Cubs, were you Royals, Sox? Who was your team? Well, my brother and I, we grew up Yankee fans. But with that being said, <laughs> he was four years older than me, and we would play wiffle ball in the backyard. And because he was the older brother, he was always the Yankees lineup. So I was the Royals by default. Oh. Those were the games that we came down to see um, in the late 70s and early 80s. I can remember my dad loading us up in the 78 Mercury Marquee, just me and my brother. And we would go down without tickets and have a sign in the window saying needing tickets for Yankees Royals because they were always a sellout. And we'd come down and watch the Yankees and Royals play. Um, And it turned out to be just so much fun to see the actual players who are a lot of my coaches on both sides coming up through the odyssey I call the baseball career and hear the perspectives on those games. So I was in fantasy camp in a sense, uh, just taking it all in. And some fans may agree that I was a fantasy camp like player just based <laughs> on my ability and numbers. But um, it was a, it was a lot of fun to see both sides. Absolutely. Well, so let's go back then. So Dowling Catholic High School, West Des Moines, Iowa, is where you went to high school. Now, how about the Iowa Cubs? Did you go watch them growing up too? I did, and we. Uh, my brother and I, we went down to watch, at the time, they were the Iowa Oaks. They were the White Sox AAA team. And we go down to Seth Taylor Stadium and see the future major leaguers come through there. Um, and then they became the Cubs when I was in high school, and we'd hit a, a game every now and then. Um, uh, but, yeah, there's a strong baseball tradition in Des Moines. And with the Little League that I played in, the West Des Moines Little League, they'd always have a Little League night down at the stadium. So if you wore your uniform in, um, you got to get in for a dollar or something. I don't remember what it was, but... Um, that was always a big thrill, just to see see the you know the real pros hit the ball around and stuff. But those guys are legendary in my mind, through guys like Harold Baines and Fat uh, Bosley, and, and just just a, a few of the greats from years past. Iowa has a lot of good uh, minor league ball. You got Cedar Rapids, Clinton, Burlington. There's lots of teams close by there. Quad Cities. That's right. That's right. My very first pro game as a kid. My we grew up. I was born in Bettendorf. Um, born in Davenport, lived in Bettendorf, and my dad. I can remember my very first memory of going to a game was a Quad Cities game. I think there were the Angels at the time. This would have been around 1971 or two. Um, and all I remember the lights and the gravel parking lot. But I do remember going to that game. And then we moved to Des Moines when I was in first grade, and I grew up there and went to high school and, and just kept playing, and things led where they did. I think that, that the Quad City Stadium now is awesome. The, the bridge there in the outfield, that wasn't there. That's a new stadium, isn't it? It's, it's it's new. I knew it was on the river at the time, but I think they've renovated it and or built it on a new site. But I remember in 93, much like a lot of the teams in Iowa, they fell victim to the floods just because of the proximity to the river. I know Sec Taylor was underwater for a while, too. But, um, uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful ballpark down there now. And the way minor league baseball's exploded, um, Iowa fans have embraced it as, as well as anybody in the country. And it's it's a, a good family way to go to 10 games and see some good baseball. And we'll talk about a certain baseball movie later, but one other one, Sugar. Have you ever seen the baseball movie Sugar? It was all filmed there in I Iowa. I sure have. Isn't it great? I sure have, yeah. I saw it on Netflix, and um, uh, I was intrigued to see that side of baseball because I saw it from a 
the perspective of being a teammate of some similar players like that. Uh, but I had no idea that just a long road that a lot of those players um, had to endure just to get out of whatever respective country they were in just to try to play baseball in the States. Um, and it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, there's another one on Netflix that I saw that was, it, uh, my Spanish isn't very good, but it was called Pelotero, but it was basically the race for players in those countries to try to get out at a young age, 16. And if they haven't reached major league potential ability by 16, then their marketability drops off. I think that's an incredible amount of pressure for kids. I was fortunate to grow up here and, and it was hard enough to get a job after college trying to play baseball, much less what I look like at 16. So I can only imagine what those kids go through. Man, I'll have to check that one out. I haven't heard of that one before. That's on Netflix, too? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it is Netflix. It's a really interesting documentary. I huh. highly recommend it for any baseball fan just to get a perspective of what these kids have to go through. Definitely. So you're all-state baseball in high school there. Uh, and then from Des Moines, you went to Iowa Western in Council Bluffs. And uh, so these days, you're a member of their Athletic Hall of Fame. What made you choose Iowa Western? Their coach would not leave me alone. And... <laughs> Um, I can remember having a discussion with my mom and dad. I wanted to go to Division I, um, but there just was no scholarship money just based on how the season, Iowa season doesn't end until August for high school baseball. At least back then it didn't. Um, and there weren't a lot of opportunities. I could walk on at places, but there's always the fear of I could go there, I get cut, now I'm at school and I can't play baseball. Um, so we decided to, to go to Iowa Western for a year and figured that if Bob Novacek, I owe him a lot, he was going to be that insistent on working hard to get me to come there, he would work that hard to help me get to Division One school. And I went there with the agreement that if I could get a Division One scholarship, he would let me go after one year, which is rather unusual uh, because they're usually two-year commitments. And uh, lo and behold, we were on a spring trip, and Arkansas came to see another player, and they needed a left-handed hitting second baseman or somebody that hit left-handed that could get lead off, and that's all I've done my whole life. And uh, some money freed up late, and I was able to get a chance to play there, and then the odyssey continued. Yeah, so obviously you knew you were close to good enough, if not good enough, to play D1 when you were in high school. So you, you knew those dreams were very much within reach, obviously. But how about, I mean, you look back to that time of your life, you're 18 years old, you're playing at Iowa Western, you're in Council Bluffs. Did you, I mean, did you realistically, deep down, think you could be a pro someday? I didn't think, that was always down the line, but I didn't think immediately. They had the winter draft, we had a player... A pitcher named Rich Longill, who was drafted in January by the Braves. Um, so we had exposure to scouts, and I always hoped, but I was a late bloomer. Um, and my thinking always was, just try to get to the next level, do the best you can, and then we'll see what happens. And that's kind of basically how I progressed. But I never would have dreamed that it would have led to the major leagues. I just, you have that hope, but you want to get the shot at the next level to do your best and see what could happen and take it as far as you could go. And so the dream was to get south to a Division One school, um, and it worked out just basically because it, they had some money that would freed up late because of that winter draft. Um, and I got an, an offer right at the end of May of my freshman year, and I took it and ran with it and got a chance to play, and I'm and, um, and very thankful for it. Yeah, your last year at Arkansas, you hit 383. Uh, you left there as the school's all-time leader in stolen bases. You had 68 College World Series, of course. Talk about that and, you know, playing for the Razorbacks. Well, it was an absolute thrill um, because I'm indebted to Norm DeBryan as well. There are a lot of people that, that were my advocates that I'm very grateful for uh, because they don't come along very often, and he's one of them. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm always appreciative of what he did for me. But he gave me a chance to play, and I was a leadoff hitter. Um, and we were playing in that time at the Southwest Conference, so we're playing Texas and Texas A&M and Baylor, and, and on the weekends you're facing Major League Ready guys, first-round draft picks, guys who are 95 miles an hour, um, and I learned to take a lot of pitches, and it helped me professionally. We didn't have uh, uh, limits on the amount we could practice, so we spent a lot of time on the field, and I learned from Norm the right way to play the game, and he gave me the chance to do that, um, and I could grow up a little bit um, down there as well. And then it led to two College World Series, which I never would have dreamed of. Um, but uh, I got to play in Omaha my sophomore year uh, and then again in my senior year. And it was a thrill just because all my friends from Des Moines could come over and my family and my mom and dad have been my biggest fans, and they got to see that firsthand. So it all came together and, and was a thrill that, that I always look back on fondly and, and appreciate the chance that I had to do so. 
Yeah, I love uh, I love Fayetteville. I head down uh, multiple times a summer to watch the Double A Royals there in Northwest Arkansas in uh, in Springdale. I, I always enjoy Dixon Street. Did you ever have some fun on Dixon Street back in the day? I did. I did. I probably had too much fun. But Dixon was a good place to go to uh, on Friday nights and Saturday nights, especially. But even more so, I went back there after I got drafted to work out in the off seasons, and I probably spent more time down there then than I did when I was in school. Yeah, yeah, it's a great area there. So right at the end uh, of your times in Arkansas, then obviously the Reds take you. It's 1989. It's the 34th round. Tom McDevitt was the scout who signed you. So so think back to draft day. So you know, were you in Omaha? Where were you at? How did you find out that news? And uh, and were the Reds the team you were kind of expecting to take you? No, I wasn't. I I mean, I had talked to Tom McDevitt a lot during my senior year um, because the scouts would come down, have you fill out a card, and you talk to them, and we had some common. Um, he, he was a coach at Eastern Illinois, and I played with some of his former um, recruits and, and players he had on his team. And so we knew some guys, and he was always friendly to me. Um, and I thought I had a decent senior year, and I was hoping to get drafted, but I didn't know. So um, May comes, and right as it were in Omaha, the draft hits. And I knew I certainly wasn't a first-round draft pick. But as we're playing, my teammates at Arkansas start finding out who's getting drafted. We had Mike Oquist. I think he went the the first of the guys on our team. Um, and so we're coming to the field that day and said, yeah, I got drafted by the Orioles. Hey, great for you, Mike. That's good. And people start hearing. And so after our game, um, I came back, and at the hotel, a lot of the guys had the message blinking on their phone. And nothing was on mine. So I went out to eat with family, um, uh, and uh, we had dinner, and, and – um, we're getting ready to, I think we had gotten beaten. That was our last game. So I kind of said goodbye to my mom and dad. We're, our bus is leaving early in the morning. And I get back at, oh, it was around 10, 30, 11. I get back and the light was blinking. And it said, call this number. And um, I called it. It was Tom McDevitt. His first question to me was, how would you like to be a Cincinnati Red? And uh, um, I was thrilled. And I couldn't wait to get off the phone and call my mom and dad and uh, tell them. Because I didn't care where I got drafted. I just wanted a chance. Again, it was that mentality of, Try to get to the next level, do what you can, and see where it leads. And that was the next stepping stone, and I'm forever indebted for Tom McDevitt believing in me enough to give me a chance to play professional baseball. And you started with a bang, too. So Pioneer League All-Star team in 89, you hit 352 at Billings. Uh, you had eight outfield assists, which, by the way, would go up by the year. But while we're talking about Billings, you know, that first summer there, what do you remember about that? Well, I remember a lot of us being together. We played against each other a lot. There were a few college guys. Tim Pugh, who is a a real good player later uh, reached the big leagues, was on that team. He played Oklahoma State. I played against him. Um, Trevor Hoffman, who was a shortstop at that time at the University of Arizona, we played together against each other in the summer leagues and actually stayed with the same family down in Nevada, Missouri, uh, playing for the Nevada Griffins. He stayed with them in 87. I stayed with them in 88, the Beisners, who are great folks. But anyway, um, we had a lot of common uh just because we knew we played against each other and then we were thrown together in this mixing pot and this thing called professional baseball. Yeah. And I can remember being at the very first training camp we had and being excited, holding an actual National League Baseball that said official National League Baseball, throwing it back and forth, hitting with wood bats, saying this is the, the big time. But my uh, Tom McDevitt gave me the best advice there ever was. Um, I never hit a lot of home runs. In fact, Dave, you and I have the same number of major league home runs, so that tells you <laughs> how good I was. But he told me that a line drive with aluminum is a line drive with wood. Just try to do the same thing. Don't try to do too much. And so I stuck with hitting the gaps, singles, doubles, just get on base any way that I could with the wood, and it proved to be the advice that helped me my entire career because I didn't go over swinging, which a lot of guys did. And I was able to adjust fairly quickly and use my speed to my advantage. And that's just kind of what created my niche that I was a leadoff hitter. I had done it my whole life and continued to do that through um, uh, the minor leagues as well. That's interesting. So two questions I have that came up from your answer right there. Uh, number one, the whole line drive thing. Did, did you ever, because you always hear George Brett say, if you go up there hit, you know, trying to hit a home run, you never will, you know, 1% of the time. Did you ever actually, though, try to, at the major league level, hit a home run? No, I never did because I could hit him in batting practice, but I, when I tried, I couldn't. I would pop it up, yeah. um, uh, and, and that would make Lamar Johnson, our hitting coach, very upset because I was supposed <laughs> to hit the ball on the ground. So you, you, you try to take an even swing. If you hit it on the sweet spot, you don't even feel it, and the ball carries. So now 
I did that a few times during my career, but the planets had to be in alignment to have that happen. So what I would do is, is focus between, if the field was a clock, 10 and 2, stay in the middle of the field, hit a gap, try to hit a line drive over second base or short, and then use my speed to try to, to get extra bases that way. Now, if the ball carried out, hey, that was a bonus, but I knew that I, that wasn't my niche and I wasn't going to be able to stay around baseball if I tried to hit home runs. I had to get on base at a high rate and try to help teams with my legs. Okay. And then you said something else there that I didn't know about that intrigues me, the Nevada-Missouri thing. So I know they, they have some what – the, what's, what were the teams you played against in that college league? Because I know it's still around, but I don't know if it's as big and as premier as it used to be. And, what, and who were some of the guys besides Hoffman that were, you know, that were there with you or that you played against? Oh, there was, there was a lot. Uh, it was the Jayhawk League at the time. I'm not sure what it's called, but we went to Hayes, Liberal, um, Hutchinson, Kansas, Wichita, Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas. Nevada, then you had two teams in Iowa, Red Oak, uh, um, as well as Clorinda. And so all those teams played in the league, and you'd have a lot of guys that would come out um, uh, come out there and play, whether they're from California. I had a, a teammate in Billings, Chris Gill, was at Long Beach State. He played at Clorinda. Uh, at Liberal, we had a loaded team. We had a guy named Rod Beck, who was a yeah. first-round draft pick, or so of the, of the Braves. Um, I think Keith Cobb, guys from Fullerton. So the summer ball was essentially a mixing plot, pot of players that played Division One baseball. So you'd see them in the summer, and then when you were playing against them, I got to be friends with guys from uh, Baylor University, who was in our conference, in the Southwest Conference, by being teammates in the summer, and then, and then they would face me and, and throw up my head during the season. But uh, we had a good time um, playing in the summer, and it, it was a great way to meet people but play baseball at a high level. Because the way it worked at that time was, Premier guys and guys on the East Coast went to Cape Cod. Um, then uh, guys, uh, good guys that would go play in the Jayhawk League. And then if you're on the West Coast and you're a premier guy, you played in Alaska. Those were the three main places that you could go for okay. college. Okay. And my coaches at Arkansas did uh, me a service by placing me on teams in the Midwest. And that's where we'd go try to hone our skills during the summer. Nevada, Missouri. Did you have a host family there? I sure did. Okay. I sure did. And it was hot and small and just baseball, I'm assuming, right? That's the memory, hot and yeah, humid and baseball? Yeah, baseball, but it was the Beisner family, um, and they were super nice people, and, and, and I'm, I'm very grateful for them taking me in. Um, and they loved baseball, but uh, they cared about us, and, and um, uh, they were really shocked when I came in because Trevor uh, Hoffman could eat at any time. He could eat a drop of a hat, a side of beef. I mean, the guy could put away food. And by comparison, I eat like a bird, so they always gave me a hard time about that. Because uh, I think Trevor was one of the first players they ever hosted, so they figured that everybody was like the way Trevor was. But we're, we're learning that he was a special individual because I expect him to be inducted in the Hall of Fame uh, very soon, if not this year, uh, in the next couple of years coming, coming up. So cool. Well, so getting back to pro ball then. So 1990, you kind of picked up right where you'd left off at Billings the year before. So at Charleston in 1990, all-star, 298, 49 bags, 106 runs scored, and I love this, 17 outfield assists. So how was uh, you know, Charleston, West Virginia? Well, Charleston was um, the South Atlantic League. Um, it, was, it was an interesting year because we started off terrible. Um, the, the season is two halves. So you have, um, I think we were 25 and 40-something our first half. We were 20 games under 500. The half ends, and then um, I started out hot, got a lot of hits early, but it was my first long season, and I think I hit 350 uh, in the first part of the year and 250 in the second part. I just ran out of gas, but we got hot late. And that team, we won 24 of our last 27 games and swept the playoffs. So it was quite a run as a team, and again, we had – Trevor Hoffman was on that team. Dan Wilson was on that team. Tim Pugh was on that team. Bobby Ayala, Jerry Spradlin. I think there were nine guys that, out of the low A-ball team that ended up making the major leagues. Um, so there was some talent that came together at the right time, and we had an invincible feeling at the end of the year, and it really propelled us and gave us a lot of confidence. And because of that year, and it, timing is everything, it has been in, in my baseball career, the Reds, decided to change their high A, and they, they went away from the high A and low A model. And at that time, it was the low A model. So some of us got to go to instructional league and get exposed to the double A coaches. And 
because of that and the end of the year that we had in Charleston, it gave me the chance to play at double A the next year. So I essentially jumped a year um, that helped propel me to get more exposure at a high level and ultimately helped me in my career to try to reach the major leagues. Yeah, you mentioned double-A Chattanooga, a uh, beautiful town. In, in your second year there, in 92, you won the Southern League batting title. You hit three How How'd you like uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee? I love hitting there. Gosh, it was a great place to hit. You could see the ball well. The ground was hard, so every ground ball would get through. And you had big gaps, so it was um, beneficial there. Um, we had another good team. Uh, we won 90 games that year. Uh, unfortunately, though, the Greenville Braves had another good team with guys like Javi Lopez and Chipper Jones. We've met them in the playoffs and lost in five games. They won 100 games during the year. We won 90, and they beat us in five games at our place, which still sticks in my craw uh, for the Southern League Championship. But we had some good battles. Um, we had a great year as a team and um, a, a lot of fun. And that year kind of was a signal to me that hey, you might have a chance to play in the major leagues, and I was hoping to be put on the red 40-man roster at the end of that year. But it didn't happen, and it all worked out because um, then the Marlins and Rockies were coming along. And because expansion created extra jobs, I, was, I had a chance in the Rule 5 draft to be taken by the Marlins, and then um, that, that was another step. Yeah, well, so let's talk about that. So, so following 92, I mean, you got to be feeling pretty good. You win the batting title, and you got to feel like maybe that next year, like you said, you get in the 40 and make your debut. But then December 7th of 92, so the Marlins take you in the Rule 5 draft. So, so take us back to that actual day. You know, where did you get the news uh, when, you, when you got selected? What were your thoughts on that and all that good stuff? Well, I was playing in the Fall League, and um, the expansion draft happened during the Fall League, the actual expansion draft. And so those were the rules then that the major league teams that uh, could protect 15 guys, and then with each, each subsequent round, or when a player got taken, they could protect two more. Well, I wasn't taking the initial draft. But Major League Baseball made an exception to the Rule 5 draft for the Rockies and Marlins in 1993. And they said that the caveat was you don't have to offer a player back if they don't make your major league roster so you can stock your team. And so I go in with Roy Matika, who was my fall league manager. Um, had a decent fall at over 300 with, for Chandler. And I went in to thank him, and he said, hey, um, you may be taken in the Rule 5 draft. There have been some guys here talking uh, about doing so. There have been a lot of scouts watching you, which I had no idea. Scouts always show up at games, but you never figure that they're you know, really watching you. And so that kind of got me excited, but I had to drive back to Des Moines from Phoenix. So I'm in my truck driving back, and ironically, I stopped near Liberal, Kansas, and I called my mom and dad, and they said, well, let your mom get on the phone. So I knew something happened. And Roy had told me that the Rangers were looking hard, so I expected them to tell me that the Rangers got me in the Rule 5 draft. But my mom and dad came on and said, the Marlins picked you. You're on the Major League roster. And I was on cloud nine from driving back because I was on a 40-man and was thrilled <laughs> to get a chance for a new team. So you found out, like, at a payphone in liberal Kansas? That's exactly right. I was in Kansas, halfway between Des Moines and Phoenix, and my mom and dad told me at a payphone, this was in the old days before cell phones, and um, uh, I drove back, and then the Marlins sent a jersey, I think, to FedEx, and I went down and got a headshot taken so they could have for the media guy, uh, and then went to spring training um, a couple of months later. So I was going to ask you, so that's got to be pretty unique. I mean, it's expansion teams nowadays are unheard of, but even back then it was a rare thing. So first spring training, 93, with an expansion team. You know, what was that like? It was a, free, it was a huge tryout camp. Um, so you had guys, again, coming together from all different teams. Um, we were misfits in a way. And Renee Latchman told me on that phone call, he reached out to me after my mom and dad told me a couple of days later, and he said, look, you're on a 40-man now. We got another guy penciled in who was Chuck Carr, but we're going to give you every chance. Just come to spring training ready to play. So I said, okay, fine. And I'm, I was rooming with Jamie McAndrew, Trevor Hoffman, um, uh, it, it, and myself. We, we got an apartment, and we were all excited. Jamie came from the Mets. Trevor and I both came from the Reds. And so we're 40-some guys. I had some non-roster invites, too. Thrown into camp, given a chance to play, and we'll see where things are. And it was exciting for us because it was our first major league camp, and we're playing against major leaguers. So in this camp, I'm talking to Dave Magan, who's on my team. He's telling me how John Smoltz is going to work me in West Palm Beach. Or Sid Fernandez uh, when we're playing the Mets in St. Lucie. 
And so we could find out what we could do against Major League Pitching. And we saw that they were good, but it wasn't that much different to double-A, and I ended up having a pretty good spring. Unfortunately for Chuck, he didn't, and I ended up making the roster. But it was a step-by-step progress, and I didn't know how long I was going to be there. And Renee Latchman called me in after a good spring and said, hey, I expected him, he called me and Chuck in, and I expected him to say, the Chuck's going to start, you had a good spring, just wait your turn and see what happened. But he told me that I was starting um, opening day for the Marlins, and I was absolutely thrilled. And, and then we went ahead and did that, and, and it wasn't too, didn't last too long, but um, uh, it was very exciting um, at the time. I mean, you were the uh, so yeah. So Marlins debut is your big league debut. That's also unheard of. But April fifth, nineteen ninety three, you're starting in center field, and as fate would have it, you became the first batter in Marlins history and the first one to reach base in Marlins history. Is that kind of surreal to you even today, knowing that you kind of started it all for the Marlins? It is, um, but it was more a function of just my role. Um, I mean, I was a leadoff hitter, so it worked out that way. But um, there, there's a lot of nuances to that day, but there were five of us making our major league debut that day. We just wanted to win. Uh, we're facing Oral Hershiser, um and Charlie Huff's on the mound, and there was more media credentials at that time given out than any Super Bowl. So there was Miami's really excited. The stadium's packed, um, and it couldn't ask for a more perfect day. And I was able to get on base, um, hit a ground ball, my first at bat, on a 2-1 count. They hit off of Hershiser's glove, went to Jody Reed, um, and then the throw was in the dirt, but I beat it out, and the umpire calls me safe, and they flash hit on the scoreboard and throw the ball out. And I'm excited because I'm singing sweet. I got a, my first major league hit. Um, uh, and then a pitch later, it was changed to an error. <laughs> and then Brett Barbary uh, takes the next pitch and hits a solid single up the middle, so he got the first hit. And I always joke and say that that hit slash air was indicative of my career. It was forbearing. But I was able to hit a 55 hopper through the hole my next at bat and get my first hit. But more importantly, the team won that day. Uh, We beat the Dodgers um, um, 6-3, I believe it was, 5-3. But we won the game, and uh, it was a thrill for South Florida. It was a thrill for all of us just to, to have that first win and play in the major league. So what ended up happening to that ball then, the, the first one, the error ball? Did you keep that one too in addition to the other one? I don't know what they did with that one, but I know that, that Mr. Hershiser wasn't very happy that we asked for the second one because he said we already threw one out. But they did ask for the ball that I hit. Um, and things weren't kind of going his way that day, and so I don't think he was too happy about it. But I apologize to him for that, but either way I was glad to get the ball. Yeah, so, so they kept that. You stayed with Florida, then you played every day for the first couple of weeks, then it was kind of a pinch hitter roll the last week, week and a half. So they send you back to AAA Edmonton at that point. But, you know, that month with the Marlins, overall, what are your favorite memories of, of that time? My fo- favorite memory was the first week. Um, I was able to play in all games. We played the Dodgers. We played the Padres. Um, we, we went, um, uh, we played them in three-game series, so... We went two and four that first week, but I got to start the first six games. I had hits in each, and I'm going out to San Francisco with the team. We're getting ready to play the Giants. Um, and uh, uh, Renee Lashman said, well, Bud Black's starting tomorrow, so we're going to start Chuck. Um, I said, fine, no problem. I pinch hit in that game. It was against David Getty, and I think I hit a weak pop-up to third. Start the next two games, don't get any hits, and don't start ever again. And had a couple of pinch hit appearances, didn't do well there, and was sent out and taken off the 40 man. And on my way to to uh, Edmonton, within I think 18 days of making my major league debut, so it was a very tough pill to swallow, but one that I guess I understood and um, had to overcome that and did the best I could in AAA to try to get back to the major leagues. Yeah, see, I always thought that was weird. So even when you went back down to Edmonton, you're in the AAA All-Star game, you hit 284, and then they just let you go the next spring training. You know, for a team that was that young, and it just seemed kind of odd to me. But then you spend 94 in the Milwaukee organization uh, for New Orleans at AAA, then 95 between Minnesota and the Dodgers and Albuquerque and Salt Lake, and then 96 yeah. at AAA Syracuse for Toronto. So by the time you get to Syracuse, you're getting to that six-year minor league free agent mark. I mean, did you start wondering in 96 if you were the quote-unquote dreaded organizational player? Yeah, I was... I, I... I was worried about that. In fact, I told my wife after 1996 when we we talked a lot about it, I drug her all over North America, and um, uh, we decided to set down roots in a place where we wanted to raise a family, and, and it was 
here in Raleigh, but we came down here at the end of 1996, and if I wasn't going to get a major league invite, um, I was going to retire. It just wasn't worth playing AAA and knocking on the door, but not having any success and and not really having a legitimate shot to make the major leagues. Um, I didn't know if it, it was going to be worth doing that, but I got an invite um, with the Yankees in 1996, just after they won the World Series, and we thought we'd go out of spring training and see what could happen, and and then um, some more good things happened and really propelled my career. Yeah, and before we talk about your Yankees days, I wanted to ask you about one guy in Syracuse who pitched for the Royals as well. We lost this guy way too young, tragically, in, in a car accident. Do you remember uh, Kenny Robinson at all? I sure do. I sure do. Great guy. Um, he had a son named Chase, like I do. That's my son's name. And we talked a lot um, in Syracuse, and, and, and we lost him way too young. I, I agree with you. And I hope the best for his wife and son as well. Um, but the kid was an absolute gamer, um, uh, threw hard, um, wasn't necessarily blessed with incredible height, but it didn't matter. He had the heart of a lion, and he would always go after players with his best stuff um, and was really a good pitcher for us. And um, uh, I, I, he was a great teammate, and I loved playing with him, and I was just so sad to hear of his passing. Yeah, it was, it was tragic for sure. So then you made a good decision then to stay in baseball, obviously. So you signed with the Yankees. You start at AAA Columbus, but after hitting 308, you're getting on base 405. Uh, the Yankees call you up to the big leagues on May 13th of 1996. So that second call up, I'm, you know, I'm assuming, it, was it even maybe more special in a way than the first one? And where were you at when you got that news? It was. It, it, it's a really interesting story. Uh, we were playing the Yankees in an exhibition game on their off day. And so... For the AAA guys like us, it was fun because we got to play against the major league guys and maybe show what we're going to do. And, of course, for the major league guys, it's like, well, I hope I don't – it's an off day that they lose. So you can imagine how they're feeling. But we're taking batting practice really early in the morning on what's the schedule off day um, at 10 a.m. And the Yankees plane gets in, their bus comes in, and we're, while we're taking batting practice, some of the players start coming out and just visiting with guys on the field. Because it wasn't too long ago we were all together in spring training. And um, I think it was Georgie Posada comes out and said, Scotty, have they told you yet? And I said, what? He said, well, you're going to come with us. And I said, that's not funny, George. Don't play a joke on me like that. You know, you figure they're just messing with you. Yeah. And more and more guys came out and started saying that. And then my heart started racing. And I'm thinking, hey, maybe there's something to this, but I don't want to buy in. I've been burned enough before. I don't want to think I'm going with the Yankees. And, um... So we get done with batting practice and taking fly balls, and I go in the locker room. Um, uh, and then Susan Waldman's in there, the Yankees radio color commentator. And she's right there with Stump Merrill, who is my manager. And she looks at Stump and looks at me, and she goes, Have you told him yet? Stump rolls his eyes, says, Scott, come to my office. And he goes, you got 45 minutes to go home and get your stuff. You're leaving with them and actually playing for them in this exhibition game. And so I called Lori. I said, please pack a bag. I got home, tried to get back in traffic, got back in time just for the game, um, and played in it. And then next thing I knew, I was, I was on a plane to Minnesota uh, after being a Columbus Clipper for a couple of months and was absolutely thrilled because, um, again, it was close to my family come up, and they could see my Yankee debut as they saw my Royal debut. Oh, that's great. And you played for Joe Torre. You know, who were some of the guys that you played with, the teammates there that you enjoyed, and how was Joe? Joe was tremendous. Uh, I'm always grateful for any manager that sees fit to put me in the major leagues, and he's one of them. But he was perfect for that job just because he was secure dealing with the media because he was a commentator so he could handle the New York media. He knew what it was like to be a player because he was a great one himself, and he never forgot it, so he related well to players. And he was strong enough to deal with Mr. Steinbrenner, who was a, a great owner, but he could be a tough boss at times, which is well-documented. So he had all those attributes, and he kept the team together. And there were nothing but great teammates on that team. There's no coincidence why the Yankees would win. Um, Jeter was in his second year. Posada was a rookie that year, but the core four were there. Bernie Williams, Andy Pettit, uh, Charlie Hayes and Wade Boggs were at third. Pat Kelly and, and uh, Mariona Duncan were at second. Tino was just coming off his, in his second year and had a great year. O'Neill was in right. Uh, then Tim Raines, Daryl Strawberry would play left. Um, but my opportunity came with them was I was doing well in AAA. They needed speed, and um, Tim Raines and Daryl Strawberry were injury-prone at the time. Great players, but they just couldn't stay healthy. So I would go and fill in 
um, in their spot and ended up being up there almost two-thirds of the year and going to the playoffs, and, and we got beat by the Indians that year. But um, uh, it was a thrill to be back in the major leagues playing at a high level and, and being counted on to be one of the guys to try to hold it together and see if you could bring a World Series home. Man, what a <clears throat> what a VIP bunch to go out with those guys, right? My gosh, those names. Well, yeah, the, the, see the way they they did. I mean, I I learned a lot from them. But just to see Joe Girardi was a catcher at the time. He was bringing Sal along and see the leadership qualities of the guys in the clubhouse. David Cohn was there. He was one. Wow. Um, and they they all just they checked their egos at the door, but all they cared about was winning. And Joe Torre didn't have to do a lot, um, meaning keeping guys in line. There was a lot of self-policing going on in the locker room, and, and guys just wanted to win, and they didn't care who got the job done. And that's kind of the speech that Joe gave every year in spring training was, look, you heard a lot about this team. This owner will get whatever we need. But one thing we ask is once we start, we play to win. We don't care who gets it done. Just find a way to get it done. and That's it. Go hit the field. And, and that's kind of the way the Yankee philosophy was in the 90s, and they executed on it pretty well. And that had to have been pretty heartbreaking in the ALDS, losing 3-2. to two. You did get in one game, though, right? No no AB, but you got in. Well, it was. I was the pinch runner uh, in uh, Paul O'Neill with two outs in the ninth. Uh, we're down a run, hits a double off the wall, and that's when I pinch ran for him. And I'm at second, and Bernie Williams is up, and he hit a deep fly ball to center field on the first pitch. And I believe it was Marquise Grissom in center field caught it um, just as I was getting to home plate. Not that I would have scored anyway, but... The Indians fans went nuts, and we lost and went home. So it was it was tough to take, but um, I always tell fans that uh, it was the only year within four that we didn't win the World Series, so since I was on the roster, it was my <laughs> fault. And, uh, yeah. um, then that happens. <laughs> well, 98 was, uh, was the next year. So you came back to the Yankees, but we're back at AAA Columbus. Now, another great year for you. You stole 47 bases. You hit 297. However, you never got that call back, even even a September one. I mean, was that pretty frustrating? Did you, did you ever think that might be in the cards that year? Well, I hoped it was, uh, but it just wasn't meant to be. I mean, how could you? It, it's. I would hope to get called out, but really, how could I argue? The team went on to win 125 games that year. They didn't need a lot of help, and you know, I wasn't on the 40 man. I wasn't guy that they were going to call on. Um, the 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 off season after that year in '97. I was a free agent again. I had a chance to sign with the Rays or the Yankees, but I didn't want to be known as Mr. Expansion, And number one. And number two, I figured that the Yankees had called me up in the years past. They knew who I was, so I might as well go back to there and maybe get an opportunity with them. But it just wasn't in the cards. Yeah. Um, and so um, we had a, a, a decent year, but another good AAA team. Mike Lowell was on that team. I think... The next year after that, nine of the players on that team in Columbus were on opening day rosters in the major leagues. Jeez. Man, talk about a competitive team. Well, and this is where it gets most exciting for me now. So we get to talk about both Kansas City and for love of the game. So I want to start with that movie. It's literally my all-time favorite movie. I've you know probably seen it like 20 times. can pretty much quote the entire movie as it comes on. Uh, now, you know, something, many people might not know that you were Matt Crane in that movie. So you had an at-bat in the ninth inning off of Costner, a.k.a. Billy Chapel, trying to break up the perfect game. So the first question is, I'm assuming that happened while you were with Columbus, or when did you get cast in that movie? How did that happen? Well, how it happened was at the end of 1998, it was clear that I wasn't going to get called up. And my agent, Pat Rooney, called me and said, hey, we're going to try to get you uh, to another major league team or permission from the Yankees. that If we can shop you to a major league team, they'll let you go to help in the playoff run in 1998. I said, sure, let's, let's try it and see what happens. And so he called me back and he said, hey, I don't have a major league job for you, but how would you like to be in a movie? I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, they're going to shoot a movie in Yankee Stadium. They're going to use Yankee minor leaguers. How would you like to do it? I said, sure, why not? Put my name in the hat. If they want to give me a part, I'll try it. Well, it turns out that Costner had this script, and he wanted to shoot a movie in Yankee Stadium, so he went to Mr. Steinbrenner and said, hey, could I use Yankee Stadium to shoot this movie? Now, keep in mind, Costner was very tight with the Fullerton State program, where the Giambis came through. Augie Garrido was the coach. And he wanted to use them as the players in the movie. But Steinbrenner, Mr. Steinbrenner said, as a condition for using Yankee Stadium, I'm going to have a say on who wears the uniform in the movie. And Costner said, fine, you can do it. So he picked minor leaguers, and that's how I got it. Well, the Tigers got wind of it, and they kind of did the same thing. So you see a lot of guys 
in that movie, they're playing the extras that were minor leaguers um, from both the Yankees uh, and the Tigers. Uh, Jose Mota was one of the guys that was on the Tigers. He was in the uh, Tiger system at the time. But Ricky Lede was one of the extras who was in the major leagues. But here's another Kansas City tie. Evan Costner's body double, they asked us who would be a good body double to help throw, because he can't throw all the time and help shoot during the movie. We recommended Dave Ireland, and sure enough, he came in. Now, he's the pitching coach for the Royals. But he was Kevin Costner, and he's the one who actually threw the pitch that I hit in the movie. And so huh. there's a little tie-in for you there. So actually filming it then, how did that work? Were the stands empty? Like, Take us through a filming day, and when you had that at bat, what would you remember about that? Well, they, they weren't empty. They had a cast of 10,000 extras, and they'd always position them. Um in shot of the camera, so if the stadium always looked full. But they also had an interesting movie. They had these cutouts that they put off in the distance, and under the camera it looks like people in stands. So they actually had these cardboard cutouts, too, with the tent, so the stadium always looked full. Um, but there were always extras there. But the movie shooting was a lot of hurry up and wait. My character, Matt Crane, it was a day-night game, so he didn't come into the night. So they set up down at the end of the Yankee Stadium, the, the batting tunnels. They made it a weight room and batting tunnels, and we could work out while we are waiting for them, the cameras to set up, so us players that were still playing could stay in shape in hopes of getting a job the next year. But it worked out for me because Brian Cashman was the general manager, and he was, of course, in Yankee Stadium. During one of the shoots, he came down and got me and said, Scott, come here, I want to talk to you. And so he called me up in his office. And... Uh, I appreciate him because he was brutally honest with me, and he said, look, if you come back to the Yankees next year, you're going to be in the same role, and there's no guarantee that you're going to get up to the Yankees. He goes, but I heard that Kansas City has interest in you, and they may be offering you a free agent contract. If I were you, I would sign with them. And huh. that's kind of how that came about. And, and the Royals made an offer to my agent, and I came in to spring training in 1999, hoping to make the Royals. Wow, that's that's cool. Okay, I'm learning so much. A, a couple more quick ones about the movie before we get to the Royals. I, I, I was telling you off the air a while ago that I asked you to one time when I was in college sign a ticket as Matt Crane, and you're like, are you serious, dude? Is, is, is that the first time that's ever happened, or have other people done that to you before? No, it, it's happened like one time since, but that was the first time that ever happened. Okay, so I honestly didn't think anybody ever saw the movie, but um, I, was, I was more than happy to do it, and I vaguely remember it. But it was it was interesting to be known as that. Uh, um, but it, it was fun at the same time too, and um, um, to see yourself on a screen like that was really interesting. My wife and I were there, and she was laughing at me because I still look like the dork that I really am anyway. So <laughs> she thought it was funny, and um, uh, it was it was a nice time to rub elbows with the Hollywood types and see what what they go through to make a movie. Has anybody ever actually recognized you from that movie instead of Scott Pose or not? Um, not not really. Once in a while, somebody will bring it up, but then they'll see the movie and then they'll put two and two together. Um, uh, but they will find out that you're in the movie and they saw it and they've seen the movie. But of course, you're not going to recognize a bit player that has just a bit part that's on there for five seconds. But when they go back and rewatch it, I was like, oh wow. And I, I rarely tell anybody. And usually what happens is they get mad that I didn't tell them that I was in it. But what do you do? You don't broadcast that kind of thing anyway. So um, I, I joke with people and tell them that I got paid in that movie to do what I always did anyway, and that was pretend to be a baseball player. So it really is, what is, is, that, is that your all-time favorite movie or what is your, I mean, baseball movie? What's your all-time favorite baseball if you had to pick one? Well, I know people are going to get on me for saying this because I live down here now, but Bull Durham was always standard because it caught – it really captured the essence of minor league life, riding the buses. Now, some of it was exaggerated. There wasn't a girl in every city. But the grind of riding on the buses, playing in front of small crowds, a rain out sometimes is a blessing to give your legs a break. But that caught the essence of it. And some of the lines are often used in minor league baseball where just the insults um, are thrown back and forth, but the insults are a form of love from your teammates. And, and that captured that very well. And so... I'm a little partial to Bull Durham, although For Love of the Game was a great movie, um, but it was more a love story than a baseball movie. Yeah. Um, but but even so, it, it, they did a good job of blending both, and, and those are probably my two favorites. 
the Bull Durham line. I love the, I'm just happy to be here when they're practicing the interview. That's interviews. right. <laughs> well, that's how I felt half the time. <laughs> one day at a time, and good Lord willing, things will work out. And sometimes it rains. Think about that. <laughs> yeah, so, that's right. So you mentioned the Royals. You signed with them December 17th, you know, and then you get to Baseball City, Florida, which by then, I'm, you know, at Amusement Park is long ago closed for about eight or nine years right. at that point, and it's a lot of weeds over there, and it's shut up, and, you know, the crowds, I'm assuming by that time, are pretty sparse. What do you remember about Baseball City? I remember playing there in an instructional league, but this is a great story in itself. Very first day, I'm in Royals camp. And now keep in mind, I've got a background. I grew up in Des Moines, so I know how the Royals and Yankees feel about each other. And I walk in, the only thing that I have is a Yankee bag. <laughs> and one of the first persons, one of the first people to see me walk in the Royal locker room with that Yankee bag is Frank White. And Frank looks at me and says, you can't have that in here. <laughs> he is dead serious. I said, Frank, I understand. It's an honor to meet you, but I'll get my stuff out of this bag, and you'll never see it again. He goes, that's it. Today is the only day that bag could be in here. <laughs> and that was it. And so I unloaded my stuff, and that Yankee bag never saw the light of the Kansas City Royals locker room again. <laughs> but it just shows how deep-seated the rivalry was. But we had a good talk afterwards. You know, he was, he was tongue-in-cheek after the fact, and then I explained to him I knew what it was like uh, when the Yankees played the Royals. And, and, and I understood the rivalry and knew what it entailed. Yeah, baseball city. It's so so complex. I'm assuming compared to the rest of them at that time. No, it was fine. I mean, it was actually when they built it, it was state of the art. It was turf at the time, and it mirrored at least turf infield, and they, it was the perfect dimensions of what Kauffman Stadium was. Um, it was a it was major league camp. You had a major league locker room. You had a nice field. The bases were 90 feet apart. The mound was still the same. It was nice, um, and we were happy to be there. And you're playing against major league competition, making a, trying to make a roster. Um, and I knew the business venture of the amusement park didn't work out, but it was still a nice facility and a great place to play. And who were some of your Royals teammates that you kind of hit it off with right away and became boys with? Um, well, I got to know uh, Mike Sweeney was a great teammate, and I got to know him right away. Uh, Les Norman's another one who was in camp at the time, and he had some time with the Marlins. I mean, if you meet with the Royals. And so uh, we had known each other, and we were kind of the grinders and non-roster invites, and we kind of hung together. And then slowly you start meeting the rest of the guys. Uh, you know, Jeff Montgomery was there, Jeff King. Um, uh, at the time, it was just before he retired during that year. Jeff Conine was there. I knew him from the Marlins. Um, so there were a lot of guys on the team that you knew play against, and, you know, you're just going along trying to make a team and, and, and hoping for the best and, and that things will work out. Well, you made uh, the opening day roster in 99, career year. You hit 285, got on base 377 in 86 games. So a few different things from that season. For starters, you began the year going 20 for your first 57. You had a couple of three RBI games in there. You had a, a game winner off of Troy Percival in May. It was a three-run pinch hit double. And then, uh, speaking of pinch hitting, your 39 ABs off the bench were the most in the league. So that first year with the Royals in 99, I'm assuming some of that you remember. What else sticks out about that year? Oh, I remember just playing, and uh, I'm not joking the one day at a time because I didn't know how long I would be with the Royals. I made the team last day of spring training uh, when they traded away Jeff Conine. Uh, they told me I'd made the team. I came with them. And so I knew that, you know, during each appearance that it could be my last, so you better produce. And it was close enough where I had some ABs, and it was almost like I was playing every day. So I got hot and rode it out and used my legs um, and, and – uh, Really enjoyed playing and tried to carve a niche for myself and help the Royals win at that time. And I knew that I was going to be, um, I was insurance, you know, in a sense. And this sounds funny saying this at the time, but please understand this was in 1999. It was Carlos Beltran's first year, and he was coming out from Double A. And so I was brought along as a guy that could might play center field in a pinch for a few days if I found somebody else. But I was the fourth or fifth outfielder is that. So I got some chances to pinch hit and as a left-handed hitter going to play and and Tony used me and I still to this day didn't know why he liked me, but I didn't question it. I just said, okay, I'll do whatever he asks. And um, I got the chance to play, um, got a few hits and then um, uh, had a groin pull in May and begged the Royals not to put me on the disabled list and they let me rehab through it and I finished the year. And then in August, Finally, Hurt came up to me and asked me if I'd ever had, and Hurt Robinson was the GM at the 
time. So if I ever had a full year in the major leagues, I said, not yet. And at the end of August, he said, well, you did it this year. And it wasn't until then that I know I was going to be able to save through the end of September because I always assumed that they were going to tap me on the shoulder any minute and tell me I was going to Omaha. And, wow. And, um, but it was a thrill to be there. I enjoyed each and every day um, playing, producing, and I got to be really good friends with um, Mike Sweeney and Jed Hansen, Joe Randa, um, uh, and um, to play with those guys uh, in 99. And I um, was more than happy that they kept me on the roster the next year and came back to spring training and, and um, remained a Royal for a while. Yeah, Tony Muser, by the way, old school baseball guy. You, you, I'm assuming you and him had some stuff in common, right? Kind of an up and down guy, you know, major league time off the bench type thing. So, I mean, did you get along with him pretty well? I got along with him. We didn't talk much except to, you know, joke every now and then, very cordial, and then we'd have the scouting report meetings, and that was it. But I didn't inter- interact with him much. But he'd just say, "Keep doing what you're doing, and and um, things will be fine." And I was more than happy with that. But I had a lot of respect for him and appreciated the chance that he gave me. Um, to be on the roster and, and contribute in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I'm, I'm, as you can get, of course, this uh, sense of this recurring theme, I'm forever indebted to him as well. I'm, I'm very grateful for him giving me a chance and all the coaches. I got to be, to know Frank White very well, Richie Dower, Lamar Johnson. Um, I learned a lot from all those guys and, and um, I'm very grateful for that chance. Well, before we get to 2000, then one other question about 99. September of 99 was right when that movie came out, For Love of the Game. Did you actually get to see that in KC when it first came out, or where did you first see it at? No, I saw it in, um, here in Raleigh. It, it came out just after the season had ended. But what was funny about that was Richie Dower found out about it. Now, Richie's been in, and he was our third base coach at the time, but he was in Stealing Home with Jody Foster. And he was talking about his time. And he said, you're not a movie star, I am. He started talking about that movie and just joking. And he said that was kind of cool. And then, of course, he teased me and said, can't wait till it come out. We'll come out and see how silly you look. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's probably going to be the case. <laughs> but, um, no, I didn't get a chance to see it in Kansas City. I saw it in the offseason here in Raleigh. I'm assuming your teammates gave you a hard time the next spring? They did. <laughs> they did. And I was called Matt Crane in Hollywood at times. But um, there was good nature ribbing, no doubt. Yeah, so 2000, that next year with the Royals, uh, you know, was kind of a, a year that was synonymous here for many years. It's hard to imagine now at the bullpen we have now, but, you know, I blew a record number of saves then in 2000, 77 wins. So really, you guys really honestly weren't too far from a playoff team in 2000 with that great outfield and, you know, Sweeney and Randa and Quinn and Die Damon Beltran. How much fun was that? It was, it was a ball. And in fact, we were the third hitting team in the league in 1999. Um, Behind the Yankees and Indians, I believe, um, but we but but we just had trouble in the back end of games. Some of that was pitching. I'm not going to put all them. Some of it was defense, and we just couldn't find a way to win games. But the young players that we had in 2000, it was incredible. You think about that outfield. So you got a perennial All Star Damon in left field, Jermaine Dye, who ended up being a World Series MVP or All Star on his own right, and of course Carlos Beltran who's in center field. I mean, with that outfield, that's going to win you a lot of games, and it did. Uh, Joker was as solid as they come at third base. Sweeney's coming into his own, and he's a perennial all-star, so there was plenty of firepower on that team. Um, we just couldn't pull it together, and, and I felt awfully bad about that because I just felt sensitive. No one knew what the, the Royals were to everybody in the Midwest, and, and, and we couldn't put it together. It was, it was just tough that we couldn't consistently win with the big boys. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think Rand is the most underrated player in Royals history. That guy was a gamer every year. Well, he could very well be. I mean, he, he got. I, I don't disagree. Um, he he got the job done uh, uh, every day. But he, he played great defense and he played hard. He never complained, and and um, there was a lot to like about him. And he was just a solid major league player. No doubt about it. Yep. So after 2000, then, unfortunately, you moved on from the Royals and, uh, and signed with the Astros. So uh, was there ever talk about coming back to KC, and, and what made you choose Houston? Well, um, uh, it, it, it was just at the talk, it, they just say, hey, Scott, thanks for what you did for us here in Kansas City, but we've got young outfielders coming up, because Quinn and Giambi were coming up at the time. And it was essentially, you know, your services are no longer needed. We'd love to have you back, but there's no guarantee that, A, you're going to come to Big League Camp, B, um, that you'll even stick on a roster. And I said, okay, thanks, but no thanks. So I signed with Houston um, and had a decent spring with them, nearly made the team, but um, 
uh, they had another outfielder there that, that kind of was the fifth outfielder who'd done well for the Astros. And so Larry Durker said, hey, go down to what that time was New Orleans, do the best you can and stay ready because I'll come get you whenever I need you. I'm like, okay, fine. But in April of that year, um, in Omaha, on a throw, I felt something given my elbow, and I ended up needing Tommy John surgery, and, and that was essentially the beginning of the end. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you, because 17 games is all you had. So it was Tommy John that year. Then yeah. one more year of pro ball then. So you're 35 years old in 2002 with Texas and L.A., both at Las Vegas, which I think would be very tough for me to focus and play baseball there, but Las Vegas and Oklahoma City that year. Was that an easy choice then to kind of hang it up at the end of that year? Well, it was, and it, my, I mean, I, I came back in, I think, nine and a half months to uh, rehab my arm. I wanted to give it a shot, see if I could make the Astros, and so I did come back, but they ended up releasing me out of spring training, um, and um, I, looking back on it now, it should have been obvious, but I was really surprised by it. I thought I was going to have a chance to prove myself, and so it, one of the worst nightmares as a player is to be mid-30s without a job in Florida. Um, very close to April 1st, and that's where I was. But the Dodgers called and said, hey, we need some help in AAA. Can you go out to Las Vegas and play? I did, and I think I was there six weeks, and they ended up releasing me, and I thought that was it. I was done. So I came back here to Raleigh and started, you know, um, while I was in Las Vegas, I finished my college degree. Um, I had a semester to go back at, at Arkansas. So while I was hurt, I was taking correspondence courses, and then, I uh, fulfilled the requirements of my degree, and I, I, I finished it in Las Vegas, be a correspondent. So I had my degree. I was going to start um, the real world, so to speak. Uh, and then with three weeks to go in the season, my agent called and said, the Rangers need somebody at AAA. They're trying to go to the playoffs. Um, do you want to go play for the last month of the season? And I looked at it as I could go out on my terms. It was my farewell. Um, I knew it was going to be the end. Go help them. Do what you can. And then hang it up after the season. That's what I did. And um, um, I guess the rest is history. That kind of put a, a bookend or a stamp on what I call the baseball career. Man, what an emotional end, though, right? That last game, I'm sure. It was. Uh, uh, we were in Salt Lake. It was in the playoffs. Um, my last at-bat was against Francisco Rodriguez, K-Rod. Um, and I hit a line drive to third and was out, and that was the end of it. Hmm. So it's kind of the way it went out, but... Um, um, Sal Fasano was a catcher, former Royal, yeah. on that team in Salt Lake. And I think he's going to be a major league manager one day. Um, I'd like to state that for the record. But anyway, um, uh, that that was the end of it, and it was a good long run. And for many, it lasted longer than it should have, um, probably for some fans in KC too, but <laughs> I enjoyed it while it lasted. You're one of my favorites. I liked you here. So last uh... – well, Last uh, four questions for you here, then. So circling back to Kansas City, then. So, you know, as far as living here, so the city of Kansas City, you know, what area of town did you stay in and, you know, some favorite hot spots? What do you remember about the city of Kansas City? Um, well, I stayed out in Overland Park. Um, there was some apartments out there where a lot of the players stayed. I know, and I had my son, who's in college now, was a, a four-year, three- or four-year-old at the time. And so it was a nice area for him, and he got to know some of the other players, too. Scott Leis, his son Mickey, was right across the way in the apartment. So we stayed there. Um, the plaza was always fun to go. Uh, there was a steakhouse out there. I think it's called the Hofbrau. Mm-hmm. Was that the, yeah. that the name of it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I loved going there and getting some prime rib um, on occasion. Um, Gates Barbecue was always a staple. Yes. You named so, the best one. That's the best one. Yep. Yeah, and um, uh, had a good time in Kansas City, but the Midwest fans, the Kansas City fans are great, and that's why I was really happy they could, because they always supported us, no matter, you know, how we were doing, and um, uh, they're good people out there, and, and I'm more than happy that the Royals brought them home a World Series, because those fans deserve it. Now, do you stay in touch with any of your old Royals teammates anymore? I do. Um, Jeff Revelay, who I got to be good friends with um, uh, in 2000, Mike Sweeney, I still talk to. Uh, one of the greatest guys ever, um, and I've um, uh, been corresponding with Joe Randa recently, too. So those guys I'll stay up with. And then guys that I played with or against, I usually see coming through here in the International League in Durham that are still in coaching. Um, so I'll see a few guys that way, too. Um, I, I keep in touch with those guys mainly and, and um, just keep tabs on them and, and see how they're doing. How long since you've been back to KC? Been a long time? It has been. It really has. I've flown through there a few times, but I have not been probably back since 2000, since uh, I was there. Uh, my family's still in Des Moines, so I go up there, but we don't get to Kansas City. So 
um, I haven't been back uh, in a long time, but I I still have fond memories and, and hope the best for the people of Kansas City. Got to get you back here someday. Well, last question for you then, I guess, is in summary, what would you like to say to all the Royals fans listening right now? Well, I'll say I'm sorry I didn't get out, uh, it, uh, it done on my watch or anything that I had to do with, and I apologize for, to the fans that didn't want me on the roster, but nonetheless, I enjoyed it every step of the way. Um, they were they were great fans, and um, it was fun being a Royal, and I cherish those memories, and and um, um, there couldn't be better fans in baseball. Yeah, well, you know, I appreciate all your time. It's been a, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you after watching you for those years, and you know, having your old when I was a kid, having your old Marlins baseball cards, and seeing you in the movie that I love so much, and seeing you as a Royal. So thanks for all the memories, and it's cool seeing you on on BTN, and hopefully we'll see you back out here uh, in Kansas City one of these years for you know some sort of Big Ten function if, if they ever come down here or something, you know, Royals game, what what have you. So hopefully we'll see you back here, and thanks so much for your time and all that you gave to the organization. Hey Dave, thanks for being a great fan and a great ambassador for the game. It's my pleasure to. Uh, to be on here and call me anytime. But uh, go Royals and let me know how I can help. Sounds good. Take care. All right, you too. Take care.